0: Praise the Lord. There really is no God like Jehovah. And that second verse, that second verse is about our sermon series, about we are the laborers in the vineyard. The harvest is as white in your world, not just in theirs. And so what a perfect connection to the continuation of our series, the Sermon on the Mission in Matthew chapter 10. I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our reading today. Matthew 10, 21 through 25. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 10. Today we do part two of last week's sermon. Matthew 10, 21 through 25. This is God's holy word for us today. Jesus says, Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child, and the child will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. "...but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master." It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? This is God's holy word for us today. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God, your eternal light and your wisdom and your instruction. Give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear. Empower, we plead, the preaching of your word this morning so that we might receive it with faith and with eagerness to obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Last week <clears throat> last week we began looking at the point in the sermon on the mission where Jesus shifts to a new topic about this mission. Jesus begins in this section in verse 16 and 17 telling them to behold and beware. Verse 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. You are like the animal that the wolves want to devour, and I'm sending you out into a field where they are. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as, as doves. And in verse 17, Beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Jesus is talking about the danger of this mission that He's sending them on, this kingdom mission. He's talking about what I'm calling the menace of the mission, that this mission comes with its own set of pressures and problems and obstacles and challenges and enemies. It's not just simple unbelief that says, no, thank you, and get lost. It's active, hostile opposition. Wolves looking for sheep with stomachs growling. Behold and beware the menace of the mission. It seems like Jesus finally gets to a positive note at the end of the passage we looked at last week. It seems like Jesus gets to a positive, hopeful stopping point. At verse 20, he says, it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Okay, Jesus, say amen, closing prayer, altar call, us go home. That perfect ending. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't end on the positive, hopeful note of verse 20, which is where last week's sermon ended. That's why we needed a part two. Because he next, in the passage we just read, starts over. And he intensifies his warnings. Now Jesus, in context, in Matthew 10, is giving the twelve instructions about their very first, quote-unquote, solo mission in Galilee. But it's clear in this section, as we keep reading, that Jesus is over-explaining for this particular occasion. He's not just telling them what they need to know for this temporary, maybe a month, couple of months, tour around Galilee, which is all on foot, so it's going to take a while. They've been with Jesus touring around. He says, okay, you've been watching me. I hope you've been taking notes. It's your turn. You can go out in pairs. You can work in groups. But your your turn to go and then report back. And here's what you're supposed to do. And that's what we've been looking at, this kingdom mission. What are they supposed to be doing? And it turns out he's not just giving them what they need for this particular short-term Galilean mission tour. He's giving them way more than they need to know for now. Way more than they need for this first mission. What Jesus is actually doing is he's anticipating... What he's going to say at the end of the book. Jesus is anticipating the Great Commission. Why is the Great Commission so short at the end of the book? Okay, go into all the world, you know, go make disciples of all the nations, teach, baptize, I'm with you to the end. Have fun. Amen. End of gospel. Uh, <laughs> okay, say a little more, please. How should we do that? What do you mean go to all the nations? How are we supposed to do that? What does that look like? What does that entail? What can we expect to face out there? Well, he doesn't have to repeat all that because he already told them up front what the whole Great Commission is going to look like, starting in their little area of Galilee and then spreading out to the nations. This is what they can expect. Now, this is information overload. This is way more than they need for the test at this point in the semester. But he's given it to them up front, and he is going to come back to this repeatedly as their discipleship continues. So when we get to the Great Commission, he can just say, now go do it, and they know what he means, and they know what to go do. He's anticipating the Great Commission here in chapter 10. So read the Great Commission and read chapter 10 in connection with each other. The one explains the other. The other summarizes the one. And this is where we can draw lessons and applications for ourselves and our church And us as individual disciples today, because Jesus isn't just telling them stuff that only applied to them for a couple of months in Galilee. He's telling them stuff that applies to the church's great commission always. And so there's something for us to learn from this. So let's begin. Jesus begins this second half of this whole paragraph from 16 to 25. He begins this half. Half by intensifying the warnings that he gave in verses 20, in, by intensifying the warnings he gave earlier. And he does this in verses 21 and 22. Look what he says. 21, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake." So this is worst case scenario, but he's saying worst case scenario is on the table. And everything short of that, where fathers and their children, and of course, he says parents as well, so this this includes moms and dads and their children. So nuclear families are going to so turn on each other. That some are going to want the others dead. It's going to get that bad. It's going to get that serious. And he's telling them... You are going into these communities and you're going to be talking. You're going to be going into houses. Remember, we just looked at this earlier before verse 16. They're going to be going to houses where there are families and you're going to give the kingdom message. Some in that home are going to believe it and receive it and become kingdom workers and laborers in the field. And the other person sleeping on the other side of the bed or down the hall isn't going to receive it and it's going to cause such a mess. In that family, it's going to literally tear that family apart. You're going to go do that, Peter, James, John. You're going to bring division into places like families and homes. And not just that, but earlier he talked about you're going to be delivered over to courts and flogged and synagogues and dragged before governors and kings. This is something that is going to absolutely cut right through the fabric of society, right down families, right down neighborhoods, right down societies, right through cultures, right through governments, right across politics. It's just going to be the great divide that's going to open up. A gulf will open up between these who accept the kingdom and those who don't. And it could, and in some cases, does get deadly. Now, Jesus is going to say more about this later. And when we get to that passage later in chapter 10, we'll go more in depth. But let's just skip ahead for a second and look what he says in verses 34 to 36 of chapter 10. He says, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait a minute, Jesus. In Advent, we celebrate your birth as the beginning of the reign of peace. You're the prince of peace. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. What about peace on earth, goodwill towards men? Jesus says two things can be true at once. And if you learn that simple lesson, you will get along with a lot of people. And a lot of issues in life will make more sense. Two things can be true at once. Not everything can be true at once, but sometimes two things can be true at once. And in one sense, Jesus is the bringer of peace. But in another sense, he brings great peace. Division. He says, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, what does he mean by a sword? Does he mean he's the one who's telling Christians to be violent? No, he's coming to put a sword in the unbeliever's hand. Because we're the ones on the receiving end of it. In other words, he's coming to do what God said he did to Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3. I will put hostility between Eve and the serpent. Enmity between Eve and the serpent and between Eve's offspring and the serpent's offspring. And that battle between those who are daughters and sons of Eve and those who are offspring of the evil one, this clash between God's people and the people of the world, the people of the serpent, has been ongoing. And you see it immediately play out in Genesis 4 when Cain kills his own brother Abel. Jesus is not doing anything different than God did in the garden. He comes to bring division. He comes to divide those who are with him from those who are against him. But he doesn't make us, the ones who are with him, violent in the process. He makes us those who turn the other cheek, who go the extra mile, who sacrifice self in love for the other he puts a sword in the other guy's hand. Now, he's not doing it in a, intentionally because he wants you to get harmed. This is just what the gospel does. It divides. The gospel, when it's received in the kingdom, when it's accepted, and you start living in a different kingdom instead of the kingdom of darkness. It's going to bring conflict, and sometimes it escalates. And Jesus is just saying, worst case scenario... Families are going to divide in a violent and bloody way. But we are not the ones who do the violence. We're the ones who have to endure the opposition. The kingdom comes with a sword that cuts right through families, neighborhoods, societies, and cultures. Right down the world, all the way through The kingdom claims your ultimate allegiance, Christian, and that can cause all sorts of trouble and even hostility between even family members. But this is what Jesus goes on to say uh, in verses 37 to 38 of chapter 10. He just said, A person's enemies will be those of his own household. And then he says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The kingdom claims your ultimate identity and your ultimate allegiance. And that means discipleship is fraught with dangers. There's a story. I don't know if it's... It's a true story, it may be apocryphal, I don't know, but it's about a great German Christian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe you've heard of Bonhoeffer, read some of his books, The Cost of Discipleship, and many other books of theology that he wrote, and on trial for his life, because he did take part in a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler, he was put to death by the Nazis for this, and... The story goes that when he's on trial before the Nazi judge, who's, you know, the verdict's already in, the, the verdict's fixed, he's, he's not getting out of this, no matter what he says. And he, and he says to Bonhoeffer in the story, he says, there's a great difference between the Third Reich, the Third Kingdom, the Nazi Kingdom, and the Kingdom of Jesus. There's a great difference between us, but the one thing we have in common is we claim the whole man. You're not a little bit Nazi, he means. You're with us totally or not at all. And he says Jesus seems to have the same requirement for his followers. And Bonhoeffer understood that. Jesus claims all of us, the whole person. The kingdom has our ultimate allegiance. And that means discipleship is fraught with dangers. Jesus sums up the reason for this danger in verse 22 of our text. He says, you will be hated by all for my namesake. You'll be hated because you have my name. You'll be hated because you belong to me. You'll be hated because you are Christian. Because of my name, hatred is reserved for you if you follow Jesus. Hatred from somebody at some point is coming your way, Christian, if you belong to Jesus. Because people reject and despise that name. They did then, they do now. What can we learn from what Jesus says? I think there's three things we should take away from what he says here. The first is this in these first couple of verses, verses 21 and 22. The first is this. He, just what he said earlier in 16 and 17, behold and beware. He wants us to beware. He wants us to be prepared, be aware for hostility and rejection because of your allegiance to Jesus, even from your own family. Some of you already know this. Some of you already have problems with family members because you're a Christian and they're not. You follow Jesus and they don't. Some of you already know the kind of pain that can come when some of you, some of you are Christian and some of you are not. It can make Thanksgiving awkward. It can make Sunday afternoon at Grandma's a little, a little stressful. And you guys already know some of you already know what that's like. But to the rest of us, be prepared for hostility and rejection to come your way simply because you love Jesus. You could be the nice, and all of you are, just the nicest people on God's earth. salt of the earth, every one of you, just beautiful people. And it wouldn't matter if you were all perfect. It just wouldn't matter because you have that name. And some are going to be hostile, and some are going to reject, even in your own homes. The second thing I would say, in addition to being prepared for that, not being shocked and outraged, I can't believe so-and-so doesn't like me because I'm a Christian. <laughs> <What? laughs> 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, don't be shocked when this happens. Okay, don't, don't let it take you by surprise. The second thing I would say this is, do not add additional reasons for non-Christians to hate uh, you. <laughs> Okay? Don't lean into the hatred and be like, yeah, they're supposed to hate us and so I'm going to be a jerk cuz more the more hate the better. <laughs> I'm going to have a heavier crown in heaven with more jewels cuz I made more people mad on the internet being a Christian. No. <laughs> There's a way to be a jerk, be offensive, go out of your way to to stir people up and be a troll and uh, uh, don't go looking for the hatred, saying "Bring it on, give me some more." Don't add reasons for non-believers not to like Christians. They have enough reasons. <laughs> Don't give them more ammo. And the third thing I would say is this: but be prepared. Don't add to the reasons why Christians are rejected or talked about about in our in our society, please. And number three, do not soften or shy away from the reason they do hate us, which is the name of Christ. When when you're not doing anything best, hand to God, I'm not doing anything extra to make anybody else not like me or not like Jesus or not like the gospel. Hand to God, I'm doing my absolute best here. I'm just being a Christian, sharing the gospel, living for the kingdom. I'm light in the darkness. People who have been in a dark room for hours, when you just turn on the blinding light, it hurts their eyes and they get mad. Well, that's you with the gospel coming to people who are in darkness and turning on like a 2000 lumens flashlight right in their eyes, and they don't like that. The darkness doesn't like the light. They want to stay in the darkness. That's Jesus in John 3. They hate the light, they don't want to come to it. So when you start shining it all over the room, they get mad. <laughs> They're not going to like that, and when the hostility comes, don't don't shy away. Oh, never mind. No, it's like Peter, right? This is like Peter at the gate when he's warming himself by the fire. Jesus has been arrested, right? And they're like, "Hey, I know you. You you you're that Galilean dude who's been with Jesus." It's a, not me. No, 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 not me. Peter just said, "I'll die for you, Jesus." And then one woman at a barrel over a fire says aren't you his follower? <laughs> no, 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 no. Not me. Don't shy away when the heat gets turned on. You will be tempted to do that. I will too. Maybe you already have been at times in your life to be. Just just keep quiet. Just hush about Jesus. Just just kind of like be a quiet Christian in the corner and And then when the pressure's turned on, no, never mind, I didn't, we shy away from it. That's natural. That's what our flesh wants to do. Of course we're going to shy away from it. No one likes this stuff. (laughs) No one likes to be the target of this kind of stuff. But when it happens, when it happens, trust in the Holy Spirit for the resources you need to stand firm for the name like the disciples did in the book of Acts. And they counted themselves worthy. They counted themselves, excuse me, not worthy. They counted themselves blessed by God to be considered worthy to suffer some persecution for Jesus. They're not like that by nature, and neither are you and neither am I. But by the Holy Spirit, we can become strong, enduring disciples of Jesus. And that takes us to the next point Jesus makes at the end of verse 22, He says, you'll be hated by all for my namesake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus ends verse 22 with a demand for endurance, but also attached to it is the reward for your endurance. Because Christian, if you hold on, that's point two, hold on, (laughs) you're going to be hated for his namesake, but if you hold on... And you stand firm and you endure to the end by the grace and power and spirit of God. Not in your own strength. But if you stand firm, there's waiting for you at the end of that narrow road. Eternal life. A kingdom that cannot be shaken and that cannot be taken from you. An eternal reward kept in heaven for you. Ready to be revealed at the last time, Peter says in 1 Peter 1. Endure to the end. Keep your eye on that reward of salvation at the end. Not for our goodness and merit and cause we deserve it, but just simply cause He promises. If you go to the end of this road, glorious things await you. You will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. You will shine like the sun in the kingdom of your Father. There is blessing and glory untold ready for us at the end. A gift of His grace, a monument to His mercy for such undeserving disciples like us. Endure to the end by His strength and power and receive your inheritance, Christian. The inheritance that's yours, not in your name, but in His. If you renounce the name, you renounce the inheritance. So cling to it. Jesus then tells the twelve not to go out of their way to be martyrs. In verse 16, he told them to be wise as serpents. He told them to be stealthy, subtle, slippery in order to elude the arrest, arrest by Herod's henchmen in Galilee. And likewise in verse 23 of our text, he says, "To flee." See this in verse 23? When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Flee to the next. Notice a contrast between this verse and verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus addresses the disciples and tells them how to deal with rejection. Verse 14, And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So this is just you go to their house. They say, thanks, you know, but no thanks. I'm not interested in Jesus. No thanks with the kingdom. Sounds lovely. I'm not ready to invest. Come back next week. Or don't come back at all and slam the door. These are people who just reject. Okay? They're not hostile, they're not mean, maybe they're rude, but they're not mean, <laughs> and they just tell you to leave. Okay, they just reject the king and they, re- they just reject the gospel. He just says, Shake off the di- shake it off and leave. <laughs> just shake it off and go to the next town. No big deal. But in verse 23, he says, When they don't just shut the door in your face, but they like pull your head inside the door and like shut the door on your face, <laughs> flee. <laughs> Get out of there. <laughs> Don't just, don't just take your time to shake it off, but like run away. Get out of there. Don't, don't go making yourself martyrs. There were people in the early church who thought, I have a faster ticket to heaven if I get killed. And there were people who wanted to be martyrs. They thought they were called to go find a Roman and provoke them to stab them to death or whatever. They wanted to be martyred, killed, murdered for Jesus. They weren't just willing to if it's God's will or if that ever happens, but they were out looking for it. And he tells, he tells the disciples, you don't have to go looking for martyrdom. You don't have to go looking for the persecution. It's going to find you, and when it does, flee to the next place. Get out of there. You don't, you don't need to stay there. And just let someone do that when you have a way to get out. Flee to the next town. But notice, it's not flee and go home and hide. It's go to the next town where the same thing might happen. (laughs) You keep going. In other words, the mission is not aborted because somebody got mad. The mission is not aborted just because there's persecution. But the mission must continue in the face of it. We don't go looking for the martyrdom. We don't go looking for the persecution But we take it when it happens, we flee when we can, and the mission continues no matter what. Rain or shine, we're on mission. At the end of verse 23, Jesus shows that he is not speaking only about his initial mission in Galilee. We made this point earlier. He's talking about the Great Commission. Now, I'm just going to mention this. I'm not going to dwell on it because we could do a whole... We could do a whole sermon just on what he says at the end of verse 23. I'll just say a word about it. Verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So what I will commend to you for homework. I don't often give you homework. But here's some. Go home and study the connection between... Verse 22, verse 23, and verse 15. I'll just read them, and I'll let you go study them together and think about and meditate on the connections between them. He says in verse 22, The one who endures to the end will be saved. He says in verse 23, When the Son of Man comes. And in verse 15, he talks about it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So Jesus in three places has the day of judgment in mind. He has the end in mind. He doesn't mean you guys, before you finish your little tour of Galilee, I'm going to come back. He hasn't even time to leave. How can he come back before he leaves? Okay, so he's not talking about like, you know, in a month I'm going to come back because he's not you know what I mean? He has, he has to go before he can return. So he's not talking about that. He's looking ahead. Because this is ultimately about the Great Commission. He's looking ahead, and at the end of the Great Commission, he will return, and there will be a day of judgment. And the towns that reject, and the people who reject Jesus in the kingdom and the gospel, it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah for them on that day. But you, if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. That's what he's saying. He's saying, hold on. The king is coming. This is an encouragement to endure the persecution, the hatred, and the hostility. The king is coming. The son of man will return. He will take care of the unbeliever and the one who rejects. You don't have to worry about that. Vengeance does not belong to you. It belongs to him. And he will deal with it then. You just worry about the mission and enduring to the end. And keeping your eyes on the coming of Christ. The son of man. And the reward that will be yours at the end. Hold on Christian. We too must hold on. By setting our hope on the coming of the king. And notice this. The very thing. The very thing that brings hatred upon us, which is His name, is the only hope any of us have to endure to the end and be saved. Acts 4.12, no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. The very thing that is your salvation is also the very thing that makes the world hate you. Because it's a sword. It cuts. It divides. What you need is the name of Christ to be saved. But if you have that name, it comes with the opposition of darkness. But that's no reason to let go of that name because it's the only hope you have. So through the opposition, you have to cling to Christ. That takes us to our last point today. Jesus finishes with a comparison to illustrate the point. He says, The disciple is like the master and should expect the same treatment as the master in verse 24. He says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Right? If you're the teacher, your students are not above you. If you're the master, the servants are not above you. No, the teacher is above, and the master is above. And then he says... In the end of verse 25, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Jesus gets called this in like uh, the next chapter or so. And what's his point? What's his point? Jesus is saying, if they did this to me, you can expect them to do it to you. If they did this to Jesus, who's greater than us, how much more will they do the same to us? He's Who could hate Jesus? He's perfect. He's the Savior. He's just love incarnate. And yet they nailed him to a tree. They hated it. Too much love. <laughs> it's just it, They couldn't handle it. They hated him. Well, if they hated the perfect Jesus, we should not be shocked when they do even more to us. But I want to end now on this point that Jesus makes at the beginning of verse 25, he says in verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. Christian, let me leave you with this today. Being like Jesus is enough for the true disciple. Likeness to the master is what we want. Likeness to the Master is what we value. Being like Him and with Him and for Him, in connection with Him and following Him, that's what we seek. We seek first the King and His kingdom. And to be like Him is enough for us, no matter what it costs or how much hatred comes our way. We just want Jesus. We want to be like Him. But being like Him means we get persecuted too, or we get rejected too, or we get the same trials and rejections that He had to face. But that doesn't matter to us because we've got the treasure hidden in the field. We've got the pearl of great price. We've got the one we love, the treasure we need forever. The thing we value more than anything in this world, we've got it. And so, okay, if it comes with challenges, fine. I mean... That We shouldn't minimize the challenges and the pain and the hurt. Of course, that stuff is real and brutal and bitter. But God sustains us through it and He gives us Jesus. And just being like Him, Christian, that's enough, right? If we could just be like Him, that's enough for us. He's our portion. He satisfies us for now and forever. And He is all we need. So do you love your master today? And do you find him to be enough for you? As we close this service and as we prepare to move to the Lord's table, cry out to the Lord today and say, Jesus, I want you. I want you to be my portion. I want you to be enough for me so that I can get on this mission and that no matter what the enemy takes from me, I can let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, his truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Let's go. Cling to Christ today and let us all trust in him and the help of his Holy Spirit and the power of God to conform us into his image, to make us like him so he can be on this mission and do what he calls us to do so that he gets the glory and we get the joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the powerful words of Jesus. We thank you for his wisdom and his truth. We thank you for his example that he didn't just tell us to go do all this and then wasn't willing to lift a finger to do it himself first and better. And so we look to his example and we thank you for his strength. We thank you for his promises. Help us to be these kinds of disciples who can endure to the end, who expect the opposition and hostility that comes to Christians and that comes to those who love Christ and those who bear that name. But let us love that name more than we love comfort and self and convenience in this life. May we not love this world or the things of this world. May we not love anything more than you. Do this work in us so that we can be empowered and freed from bondage to this world and the stuff and the things of this life so that we can go be on this mission so that we can be your disciples, so that we can see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.